Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain of children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. And the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that, the, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahai Roy, it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Great. Thank you, Jacob. Well, according to the CBC News site, the average Canadian has a uh, an attention span that is eight seconds long. That means by the time that I finish this sentence, half of you are probably going to have forgotten how I began it. Now clearly that, that's not going to be the case, right? We can, we can clearly pay attention for longer than eight seconds at a time, at least I hope so, otherwise this is going to be really, really difficult this morning. However, um, I, I looked into that uh, statistic, because I actually, I've heard it a number of times that, that our attention span is getting shorter and shorter as modern technology gets faster and faster. And actually, I, I'm not sure where that came from. It seems that no one really knows where that number eight seconds came from. But nonetheless, it, it really is true. We, we have lived in such a time where, where a lot of our life has sped up a good deal, hasn't it? Right, just think back, uh, if you're old enough to remember back to dial-up internet, right, it wasn't that long ago, but dial-up internet, you remember, you, you would start up your computer and you'd start up, you'd have to connect to the internet because it didn't do that automatically and it would take a long time. And if you actually wanted to send an email, it would take like five minutes of whirring and chirping and all kinds of other noises until finally that email would actually send. And the thing is, at the time, that was lightning fast, wasn't it? 
That was super fast because the alternative was actually getting out pen, paper, writing something out, putting it into a mailbox, and waiting a few days until it got delivered to wherever it was supposed to be going. There was a massive difference between a few days and five minutes. Suddenly, five minutes looks like nothing. It's funny because now, if I had a computer that took five minutes to send an email, I'd chuck the thing out. That's useless. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to wait five minutes to send an email. Right? The, the speed in which we expect things to happen has been increasing and going faster and faster. Right? And, we, and we can use that in a lot of different uh, areas. When my grandparents came over from, from Germany in the 50s, it took them somewhere around a month to get from Germany all the way out here to Greendale. Right? It took them a long time. They had to get from Germany to the coast all the way across the Atlantic and then take a train all the way across the country as they stopped along the way. Today, if I want to do that same trip, I could probably be there by tomorrow. Right? We've turned a month-long journey into a few hours, and we sometimes complain about how long it takes to travel. Right? We, we have changed the way we expect life to function. We expect things to go quickly. We expect them to be instant. And yet the truth is there's lots of things in life that just we can't hurry up. We can't hurry everything up. I think relationships is a really good example. Right? If you want to become someone's friend, you can try and rush that, but you're probably just going to be scaring them away. They're going to go, wait, what are you doing? This is, uh, no, hold on, hold on, Right? You can't actually rush becoming someone's friend. You can't rush trusting someone. Those things have to be built up over time. Right? If you learn a new skill, if you're learning something in school, you can't actually rush that. You have to put in the time. You have to put in the effort. You have to read the book or listen to your teacher or, or actually start doing it. Right? If you want to learn to play the piano, you actually have to sit down and start practicing pushing the keys down. It's the only way you're going to learn. And so patience is required of us. Whether we like it or not, whether we're good at it or not, life does require patience. And it's tricky because usually we want what we want and we want it now. And that's why it makes it so difficult when God says to us, wait. See, when I was younger, they, they used to say, and I think it's true, God answers prayer in three ways. Yes, no, or wait. And as I've gotten older, I've realized that it's often that last one that God uses, wait. Just continue to wait, it will come one day. And that's really where our temptation comes in, isn't it? It's the temptation that while we are waiting, well, why don't I just take it into my own hands? Why don't I just do it myself? Why do I have to wait for God? Can't I just do it myself. And really, that's exactly what our passage is this morning, right? Our passage this morning is Abram and Sarai, his wife, coming to that exact same conclusion. Why should I wait for what God's going to do? Why don't I just figure it out myself? So if you have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to open back up to Genesis 16. We'll, we'll walk through this passage together. And this is really, this is another one of those points in Abram's life that we really shouldn't follow his example on, 
right? This is not one of those where we should go, yeah, that was a good idea. No, it wasn't, all right? In case that's not clear from what just happened and what we just read, don't do that. This is not one of those times where Abram gets it right. He gets it wrong. And in fact, what we learn from this more than anything is what not to do. We see all of the pitfalls that are there as we learn to be patient, as we learn to wait on God's promises, Right, and so that's really what I want us to see this morning. We want to look at what does patient faith look like. First of all, looking at them getting it wrong and then asking, well, what does it look like? And then secondly, I want to ask, what does Hagar mean, this servant who says, this is the God who sees? Why should that be of any comfort to us as we wait? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Fairly simple. We're going to look at what does it mean to be patient in our faith. So let's look at it. What does it mean to be patient in faith? Look back at verse 1 with me. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Now I know, it's an unfortunate name for this servant, but that is her name. It always makes me think of Hagar the Horrible, and it's just kind of like, oh, that's, that's unfortunate. But nonetheless, that's her name, all right? We'll just move right past that. But this is a brilliant introductory statement because actually in this first verse, we get nearly the whole story set up for us, right? We're told Abram and Sarah, they do not have any children, right? Sarai is now starting to get up there in age. She's somewhere around 70 years old. And so she's starting to think, you know what? This is not looking like it's going to happen, right? They've been in Canaan for about 10 years now. God promised you're going to have an offspring. And they're going, it's been a decade. And it doesn't look like it's even physically going to be possible any longer. So what are we waiting for? Why don't we do something about it? So what does she do? She goes, well, I've got a servant, right? Now, and we're told Hagar is her servant, and, and we get this extra little detail that she is an Egyptian servant, right? There's a little bit of foreshadowing in that detail being included into the story. If you remember from the life of Abram, where would he have gotten an Egyptian servant, well, it was the last time he was down in Egypt. If you remember, that was the time where he sold his wife into a harem so that he could save his own skin. That time doesn't exactly bring back confidence for what's about to happen. Actually, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. Something's about to go bad, and it does, right? Verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, Behold now... The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Right, this is a pretty shocking solution to what, or to this problem, right? We wouldn't exactly expect her to come up like, why did your mind go here of all places? But but let's be fair, at least to Sarai, and say this would have been the cultural expectation, right? This was completely normal within this culture to say, well, you know what? If, if you can't have children, just get another wife, right? That would have been the expectation. Abram, what have you been waiting so long for? You knew she couldn't have children. Get another wife. Come on, hurry it up. And so Sarai now comes and says, well, 
It's what everyone is expecting us to be doing. Everyone is saying we ought to be doing this. Maybe we should just consider it, right? And you've got to feel for Sarai at this point, right? Because it's not like this is something she's been dealing with for just a little while. This is something that's been going on for a long time. This is a pain that's deeply rooted in her life. This is something she has been longing for and has been feeling that that sting of loss month after month, year after year. And after a while, it just gets really difficult to deal with time and time again. And so she starts getting just a little bit more desperate. And a little bit more, she starts thinking, you know what, maybe I can just start cutting some of these corners. Maybe I, don't, maybe I don't have to wait till God gives me a child, right? God promised Abram a child, but so, so maybe, maybe we just need to find another way for Abram to have a child. Maybe that's what God wants us to be doing. All right, that, that's how we should have this child. See, it's amazing how easy it can become to justify our sin, where we can use, especially when we have these deep-rooted longings. It wasn't that Sarai had a wrong desire. It's not wrong to want children, and yet it led her to do something that certainly was not what God had intended. Right? We can justify sin in our own lives as well. We come up with all kinds of ways of saying, it's okay for me to disobey what God wants, especially when we really want it, right? The guy who's lazy at work says, well, you know what? The company doesn't really treat me right. They don't really expect me to do a full day's work. So, you know, it's okay. I'm just kind of leveling the playing field. There's nothing wrong about it. Right, the couple who's sleeping together says, yeah, but, but we're in love. And we're going to get married anyways, so, so what's the big deal if we're sleeping together now? Everyone expects that's what we're doing. It's the next step in our relationship. The husband who's addicted to pornography says, you know what, but my wife, she just doesn't really relate to me well, and so I just need to take care of this physical thing over here. Actually, I'm saving our relationship. We come up with all kinds of ways to justify, to say that the sin we are engaged in is actually okay. It's amazing how often that's what everyone else is doing actually seems to work. And so that's exactly what Sarai does. She says, well, everyone else is doing it, so, so maybe we can also do the same thing. And Abram here, he just goes right along with it. Right? Instead of saying, actually, we really shouldn't be doing that, he just says, okay, we'll go along with this. Right? And so in verse 4, we find out that uh, Abram, uh, he went into Hagar and she conceived. And isn't that interesting? For just a brief moment, for just a brief moment, doesn't it look like their plan went exactly Right? Right? They wanted a child. They decided this is how they would get it. And now they have this child. Doesn't it look like, hey, their sin, maybe it was justified. They got a child out of it. It seemed to work. But before verse 4 even ends, it goes wrong. Verse 4 ends and says, And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
Hagar starts to resent Sarai almost immediately, realizes she's pregnant, and looks at her and says, if you were a real woman, you would have gotten pregnant, as if that was even in her control. Immediately, she becomes superiority, and there's condescension. That, that perfect little happy family they thought they would be getting is immediately just shattered and broken. See, sin, even when we justify it, still comes with consequences. And Sarai, she gets mad, right? She's mad that now suddenly she's lost her place in this house, and now suddenly she has to deal with this servant who's treating her poorly. And so she flips it back onto Abram. Verse 5, she says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Right? Sarai is mad about what's going on. And so she starts taking it out on Abram. Now Abram's life is getting really horrible, and you got to love how she just brings in divine judgment into this argument. Like, that's always a good way to win an argument. God's going to judge between us. Like, boom. All right? This is not a good argument. This is not a good thing that's happening. And so Abram just responds. He says, fine, do whatever you want. Your servant, I don't care. So Sarah begins to mistreat her so badly until finally Hagar runs away and tries to escape. As one preacher said it, you started out thinking you got a good deal, it turned into an ordeal, and now you're looking for a new deal, right? This is exactly what's going on with Abram and Sarai. They are trying to get out of the mess they put themselves in. And so as it turns out, they are this perfect example of what we ought not to be doing as we seek to wait, as we seek to be patient in our faith. So the question is then, well, what does patient faith look like? Where did they go wrong? How can we avoid that? Because I think, I think they actually learned from this experience. See, later on, when their son Isaac, the one that was foretold, Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, and they go through the same problem. But look at how they deal with it. Genesis chapter 25. It says, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Do you notice what wasn't in our chapter what wasn't in chapter 16 was Abram and Sarai actually praying to God. What was in their speech, what was in this chapter was them saying, look at what I don't have. See, the very first thing that patient faith is, is it's fixated on God, not on what we're missing, not on the thing that we are waiting for. See, my wife and I, we have a dog. She's very cute. She's very excitable. Uh, her name's Holly. If you ever come over, the first thing she will try and do is jump on you because she's so excited to see you, all right? She, she's super excited. So we're, we're teaching her, right? We're, we're training her. Uh, you know, okay, you have to stay. You have to wait, right? And so one of the ways that we do that is we, we just put a little treat on the ground and we say, okay, stay, stay, right? And, and if you watch her, her whole vision is fixated on that treat, 
Like everything, everything in her body is like nearly shaking. She wants the treat so badly. That's all she's looking at. And she starts inching her way closer and closer. And if you, if you keep on saying stay, she'll, she'll almost try and like lick it with her tongue, right? She's just, she's trying to get everything in her body. It's just, I want that so bad because that's all she's focusing on. However, when we don't show her the treat, when we say, okay, just, just stay, and she's actually looking at us, suddenly she can stay very nicely. She can sit there because, oh, actually, I'll just wait until they tell me to go. See, it's where her eyes are fixed. And see, the, the, ah, the truth is, whether we like it or not, we do the same thing. When all we are focused on, when all we are thinking about is what we are lacking, is what we are wanting, suddenly it becomes so hard to wait for when God says we can have it that we start trying to cheat our way to get it. Rather, when we start actually focusing on God and say, you are the one that I'm fixated on, suddenly it becomes so much easier to wait for God. Patient faith is first and foremost fixated on God, not on our surroundings. It means we also need to trust his promises. See, the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, what the writer's doing here is he's saying that those who have faith and those who are patient are the ones who inherit these promises. Why? Because they have that full assurance that God is going to do what he promised. So you know what else is lacking from this chapter? What else is lacking from this chapter is what happened immediately before it. Last week, we looked at chapter 15, and if you remember, God makes a covenant with Abram, says, I am giving you my absolute word that you will have a son, and you know what never comes up here? Any remembrance of what God promised. Any time where Abram says, hold on, God gave us his word. God promised to us, I have a covenant with God that this is going to come true. Why would I worry about that when I am assured that his word will come true? See, the same thing works for us. It's the moment we stop considering, we stop reminding ourselves of what the word of God says. When we stop reading our Bibles, when we stop putting it into our minds again and again, reminding one another, building one another up to know the promises of God, that's when we start to doubt and shake and waver. Patient faith is fixated on God, and it's trusting in His promises. Thirdly, I'm going to say, it is looking to eternity. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
See, Paul says, you can wait patiently on God, even through afflictions and sorrows and trials. Why? Because you know that all of these things around you, they are transient, they are light, they are momentary, they're insignificant next to the unbelievable weight of eternity. That is where we have fixed our hope and our mind and our eyes. We look there not at what we have around us, not at what's going on. See, Abram and Sarah, they were concerned about what everyone else was doing, what, what seemed to be good at the moment. They're not looking to what God was doing in the plan of eternity. Fine. So, uh, patient faith, fixated on God, trusting in His Word, looking to eternity. Finally, I'm going to say it's rooted in prayer. We noticed already that they didn't start or even have any prayer in this chapter but let's give them the benefit of the doubt for a moment that they probably did at some point. At some point in the last decade, they certainly prayed to God and said, you know what, we'd really love a child. We don't have one. But what clearly happened is at some point they stopped. They stopped continuing to pray. I think we do that a lot. We pray once and we think, it didn't happen. Okay, next, I'm going to try something else because that clearly didn't work. Yet when you look at prayer in the Bible, look at how David prays in Psalm 55. He says, give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I am restless in my complaint and I moan. Right? I think sometimes we don't even think we're allowed to pray like that. Are we even allowed to come to God and say, you know what? This is not how I was hoping it would be. I have all these complaints, and yet those complaints don't lead David away from God. They lead him more to God. And he keeps on pouring himself out in prayer. He goes on and says, But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan, and he hears my voice. David says, I got up and I was praying. At lunch, I was praying. In the evening, I was praying again and again and again, and God heard my prayer. David was relentless in his prayer, and he ends this uh, psalm by saying, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. See, patient faith, is one that is relentless in prayer. Goes back again and again and again and again, trusting in what? That God will be faithful to his promises. So patient faith is fixated on God. It's trusting in his word. It's looking to eternity. It is relentless in prayer. And sometimes we ask, well, why does God make us wait? Why doesn't he just answer all of these prayers yes right away, especially if they're going to be anyways? I think the answer, well, there's a, probably a thousand answers that God has. God's doing many, many things all at once. But one of the answers we certainly see in the Bible is because he's looking to build our faith to be exactly like this so that we would be fixated on him so that we would trust in him, so that our faith would be built up as we pray and as we work out this patient faith before God. 
See, the example of Sarah and Abram is a great example of the chaos that happens when we don't do this, of all the anxiety and all the troubles and all the strife that comes when we try and do these things our own way. We try and accomplish God's purposes without God. And so, we're called not to follow their example, but rather to actually learn from their example. And you might say, yeah, I mean, that, that's great. But man, that, that's really hard. Like, that's, that's a difficult road to take. That's a, that's a high calling, a difficult task. How do I even know I'm able to continue on with this? But the story didn't end. Look back at our text See, God continues this story, not looking at Abram and Sarai, but actually looking at what happens then with Hagar, right? She runs away from Abram and Sarah. She is taking off by herself, alone, pregnant, without a lot of supplies, and now trying to cross a desert to get back to Egypt, right? That's where she was going on her way. This is not exactly a good situation for anyone to be in. And so she finally gets to this well, this little oasis that she can rest at and try and revive herself, and that's where God meets her, alone, by herself, without really much of a hope for a future. And God speaks to her, and this is what he says, verse 8. He says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? Now, listen, God clearly already knows the answers to those questions, right? And Hagar simply responds, I'm running away. I'm trying to get out of here. I'm not sure she had a whole lot of a plan on this one, but rather she was just trying to get away by whatever means she could. See, what's so interesting here is that God calls her by name. If you notice, no one else in this text has ever called her by name. Abram and Sarai simply refer to her as the servant, your servant, my servant. God comes and says, I'm going to call you by your name. See, God doesn't come to accuse her, doesn't come to kind of slap her over the head. He actually comes as a comforter. He comes with a great deal of tenderness for a woman who is in distress and running away. And God meets her and gives her a promise a promise for a future. God says, I'm going to multiply your offspring greatly. Verse 11 says, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Right? Consider that for a moment. This is a day before an ultrasound. She didn't know she was having a son at that point, let alone that he would... Uh, grow up, and God says, here, I'm going to name him right now for you. I'm going to name his name Ishmael. It means God hears. And it's to be a reminder to you, Hagar, every time you see your son, you are to be reminded that I have heard you, that I have seen you in your distress. In fact, I think God meant it to be a reminder to Abram and Sarai as well, that God heard Hagar that God heard and saw her in her distress and her trouble. See, God actually comes as the God who sees, not to attack her, but actually to comfort her in her trial. And then he goes on in verse 12. And then it gets a little weird, doesn't it? 
Verse 12 says, he, talking about Ishmael, he shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. You think, that's less comforting, right? (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, that's what no mother wants to hear. Your child will be a wild donkey of a man. Ah, right? That's not terribly encouraging, but but for a moment, just consider that. Hagar at this point has no, has no assurance that she's going to live tomorrow. She's off by herself in the wilderness. This is not a safe place, let alone that her child will survive, let alone that he shall thrive, that he shall be a great nation, one that is able to take care of himself, that is going to be, yes, separate, but clearly has enough strength to be able to defend himself. Actually, what God is saying is your child does have a future. He does have a future. Are there rough parts on this one? Yep. Yeah, he's going to be a difficult guy to get along with sometimes, and yet he shall have the strength and the ability to defend himself. But what is interesting here is that this is clearly a different promise than what God made to the offspring of Abram. Right, God makes a very different promise to him. It's as if to remind us that, you know what? God's promises are not going to be fulfilled by our conniving. They're going to come through his purposes and his way. Right? Ishmael was not going to be this child of promise. But what's perhaps most amazing is how Hagar then reacts, isn't it? Verse 13, she says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Behir Lahai Roi. It means the well of the living one who sees me. Hagar recognizes that the faithfulness and the mercy of God has been given to her, and so she says, you are the God of seeing. Now here, this clearly can't just mean that God saw her, like sight. For first of all, God is spirit. He doesn't have eyes in the same way that we have eyes. Clearly, something more is being intended by this, and we get this little clue when she says that you have looked after me. Later on in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 3, as God is speaking to Moses, he gives us a little bit more of an insight. What does it mean that God has seen her, that he has seen his people? Exodus chapter 3 says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. See, when it says God saw them, that he heard them, it means more than he just was made aware of their existence. Actually, it's talking about God has come now to take action in order to redeem his people, and that's exactly what he's doing with Hagar. He comes down and gives her this promise of a future that he would take care of her. Right? Imagine for a moment the, the time when Hagar actually comes back to Abram and Sarai. Right? She walks back into camp, and everyone's looking at her and going, uh, what are you doing here? We thought you had gone. Why are you here again? And she would have come, and she would said, all right, 
I came back because God met me. I came back because God came and he gave me a promise for the future of my child. His name is God hears because he has heard me. See, I guarantee you that would have changed everything in that home. Right, that would have changed how Abram and Sarai looked at their servant, no longer as someone that could be despised, but rather as someone who is heard from by God. That changed how she went through her pregnancy, certainly how things worked in that family. And so Hagar then responds and says, I have seen him who cares for me. Right? God doesn't leave us to ourselves. He doesn't just leave us in our waiting, in our affliction, in our trials, in our struggles. Actually, God comes and he meets us there. In fact, that's exactly what God does with Hagar. He reveals himself to us and he redeems us out of those trials. You might say, great for Hagar. What does it mean for us? The writer of Hebrews, once again, gives us a great answer. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. How does God reveal himself to us? The answer is, he sent Jesus. God sent Jesus into this world as his own very son, as his perfect representative of himself, as the second person of the Trinity. God comes to us and meets us in our trials, in our waiting, and in our struggles. And Jesus came not simply to see, but to redeem, to be the God who sees, the God who saves that he would come and that he would actually die on a cross for our sins, for all the times we have messed up, for all the times we have tried to cut corners and get things we should not have. God came. Jesus himself came and died on a cross to pay that punishment so we might be redeemed, so that we might be saved. How do I know God cares for me? He sent Jesus. How do I know God hears me? It's because Jesus intercedes on our behalf. How do I know God will forgive me? It's because Jesus paid the price. It's so that we might actually believe in him. First Peter puts it this way. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Though we haven't seen Jesus in person, still we can place our faith in him, we can love him, and we can have that assurance of eternal life, of salvation that is found in him. And in that, we can rejoice. No matter if we are waiting, no matter if we are going through trials, no matter if we are suffering, still we can rejoice because of what God has done, because Jesus has come. Do you know the God who has seen you? 
I don't know where you are at this morning. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know if you're struggling. I don't know if you're just cruising along and everything seems great. Do you know the God who has seen you, who has seen you in your trials, who has sent Jesus to come to redeem you out of your sin, perhaps the very thing you didn't know you needed, yet the greatest need in our life is not for right now, but it's for eternity. Do you know the God who has seen you? See, we live in a world that is fast-paced, right? We want instant results. We want fast food, fast cars, fast money. This morning as we close, I invite the worship team to come forward as well. This morning as we close, I want to invite you, would you come and would you learn this kind of patient faith? This kind of patient, steadfast, looking to God, eyes fixated on Him, trusting in His promises, looking into eternity rather than here, resilient in our prayer. Lord, Oh, Lord, I pray, would you work that in our hearts? Would we discipline ourselves? Would we long for the time that we would know God? Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. We are so thankful, Lord, that you, oh, Father, that you have seen us, that you didn't leave us in our struggles, in our inability, but, Father, you came, you redeemed, you saved us from our sins. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for your mercy, for your comfort, for your grace, for the fact that you have not left us alone but sent Jesus. Father, we praise you. Father, I pray. Make us patient in our faith. Make us steadfast in the midst of many things that we might rejoice because you have seen us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.